we come then to the last of those Ten Commandments. I'll read it out, and uh, I indicated that I prepared from the New King James Version. There are slight differences, which we will come to. And these are the words. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. As we come to these words, Lord, speak to us, we pray, and show us that each of these words has a great significance to us, even in this 21st century, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we have seen, I trust, that in the last six commandments, including this one, that uh, they point us to the practical, to the social, that is relationship with one another, and of course, to the spiritual. But I want to deal with this last commandment slightly different to that pattern, although I trust we will see that all are still applicable. As we come to this commandment, we find that in its length and its detail, it affirms the biblical outworking of God's holy law. Now I'd like to read you a quotation from John Gill this time. I can't, uh, I'm not sure when this was written, but it certainly wasn't written yesterday. This is what John Gill says. This is the tenth and last commandment, and it's an explanation of several of the past, that's several of the others, showing that the law of God not only forbids external acts of sin, but the inward and first motions of the mind to it. The motions, the first motions of the mind to it. Starting to think about what we may do that breaks God's <coughs> law. Um, very often we talk about a spontaneous act, a spontaneous theft, something that just happened on the spur of the moment. Well, I only did it on the spur of the moment. Well, that's true. But so often the converse is true. And uh, I think that uh, as I read these words of John Gill, I could not help but think of 2 Samuel chapter 11, because there we read that David was up on the roof of his palace and he saw Bathsheba. Had he shut off there, things might have been very different, but he didn't. He inquired, who is that? And they told him, she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Ah, a married woman. Forget it. But he didn't. He sent for her, and the rest, as they say, is history. And I don't know whether John Gill had that in mind when he wrote what he did concerning this particular commandment, but I can't help thinking that he did, or if he didn't, it could not have been far from his mind. 
Now also I want to do something this evening that I've never done before. I've been preaching for something like 55 years and I've never done this before. Uh, to end with a praise or summary of a sermon that our pastor preached in Whittlesey back on the 25th of November. The whole sermon you can listen to if you want on the internet. If you go in on uh, Whittlesey Baptist Church, press the sermons button and look for November the 25th. You'll see it. We'll come back to it later. It's under the title Help to Love and it's on John chapter 14 verses 15 to 31. Seems highly unlikely title, A Help to Love, <coughs> The Ten Commandments, What's the Connection? Well, I hope we'll see that as we go along and then come to it in detail later. But first of all, what is this word covet? I think if you go about in the highways and byways of Potton or Bedford or wherever, you won't often hear the word covet used nowadays, even though it's used in our new translations of scripture. It's not a common word, is it? And as usual, it's instructive to look at the meaning of the word in the original Hebrew and the original Greek. Now, as I've explained before, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm not a Greek scholar, but praise God, we can uh, look these things up and we can see something of their meaning. Now, in Hebrew, there are three words translated, covet. One is ava, to desire for oneself. The second is batza, to be greedy for gain, in an unlawful sense. There's nothing wrong with wanting gain if we're prepared to work for it, but not to, for example, steal for it. The third one is chamad, to desire or to take pleasure in and that is actually the word that is used in this commandment. In the New Testament there are four words for covet. <coughs> the first is epith epithumio. Now you've heard of an earthquake and they talk about the epicenter. Well actually it's a double word because epi means center, it's the center center. So they don't need to say it's the epicenter, just the epi because that's the center. And it's when we center our thoughts upon a strong desire for something, we get a fixation. That's what that word means. The second word we're familiar with because it's in the English language too, it's zello, to be zealous for something, to earnestly desire something. The third word is pleonectes, a desire for more. And as soon as I read that, I thought about Oliver Twist. More? I have to admit, I shouldn't say this about my dear grandchildren, but they always love a buffet. Why? Because they can go back for more. They take a little the first time, and then they go back a second, and they go back a third. Well, I don't know if they're breaking this commandment by coveting like that. I hope not. But that is basically the meaning of this third word. The last is... Phil, Phil Agurus. Phil, Philo, love, you know that word, I'm sure. Agurus is Greek for silver, love of money. Someone once asked a certain man in the United States how he come to have three wives, and he said he was so busy making money he didn't notice, or words to that effect. 
Do you believe that? Well, I don't know. But love of money filled the gurus. But we do need to go back to that original word in our text. But before we do so, I have an observation to make, which perhaps you're familiar with, that it's not always wrong to covet. Because if you know your authorised version, you will know 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 31, we'll come back to this, but earnestly desire or earnestly covet the best gifts. It's not wrong to covet the good things. This verse and the teaching of scripture is that it is wrong <coughs> when we covet the wrong things that will lead us astray. And it's very important, you see, we've said throughout that these commands are not negative, they're positive. And this word covet points us to Paul's word in that first letter to the Corinthians 12 and verse 31. Covet the best things. And if we turn our minds to those best things, we won't have so much desire to covet as this command tells us not. So firstly, the first part, you shall not covet. We're back, as I said, with the Hebrew word chamad and with a desire for what we do not have. Basically, greed, we would say. And the commandment focuses upon that which belongs to our neighbour. But before we uh, think of that, let's look at a verse that Paul wrote to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. For the love of money, Philogorus, is the root of all kinds of evils, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Paul is writing about Christian believers. We can fall into this same temptation. And one of my saddest experiences was that uh, I have a very good friend over in Norfolk, and he has a sister, and uh, he was married to the son of a, an evangelist who was a successful evangelist in ministering the gospel in Norfolk, but they were acquisitious. And uh, we would go to see them, and it would be a lovely house. Look at the new carpets. And we've just got a new car, isn't it great? And the next time we would go to see them, they would be in a bigger and better house with a bigger new carpet and a bigger <coughs> new car. And I said to my friend, they do seem to be getting very materialistic. Whether he agreed with me or not, I don't know. It was his sister we were talking about, so perhaps his lips were sealed. But yes, says Paul to Timothy, the love of money and what money will buy, of course, is a root of all kinds of evil. And this particular grief, because we see our nation obsessed with things like the National Lottery. You go into any shop on a Saturday afternoon and there they are all queuing up to buy their lottery tickets. Somebody must win, yes, but many more must lose. And this is covetousness. I covet that lottery prize. What's the prize this week? Oh, 10 million, whatever it is. 
I don't even know how the National Lottery works and hope I never do. But it's uh, been ingrained into our national life. And to me, this is one of the outworkings of this commandment. You must not covet. We see also the so-called victimless crime, where we do something because we say, well, no one really suffers from that, so it's all right. But um, there is a uh, downside to this. There is no victimless crime. Because the victim in the victimless crime, if it should ever exist, is the perpetrator of it. Because it destroys our souls. Listen what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Now many of those items are what you might call victimless crimes. Some are crimes with victims. But they have a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. You see, there is no victimless crime. Whether there's a victim that we can point to and say, yes, he or she suffered from that a crime, or whether it's just within, always, it turns us away from God and from his love and justice. We can see more than this in uh, Luke chapter 12. Remember, there was two brothers and uh, there was an inheritance. And the brother who was not going to inherit came to Jesus and said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He wanted his slice of the cake. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. How much does 21st century man and woman want to hear that message? A man's life, a woman's life, does not consist of the abundance of the things he or she possesses. And then, of course, Jesus told that story about this rich man who'd been successful in business. And uh, he was a farmer, so he built these bigger barns. Oh, look what I've got laid up for me. You fool. This night your soul will be required of you. And then whose will those things be which you have provided? Remember this morning the purse. It can be stolen. It's gone. And this rich man was going to die that night. Where would all his wealth go? Probably to the most undeserving people <coughs> of You fool. So is he who lays treasure up for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, this is what these words covetousness leave us to. That rich man perhaps gained his wealth by industry, honest toil, we don't know. But it filled his heart 
with that desire for more, that covetousness, which didn't relate particularly necessarily to his neighbor, but nonetheless destroyed him. Then we come to that word, the next word. You shall not covet your neighbors. Now, uh, this morning we, I think I quoted the verse, the Lord Jesus saying that not one jot or tittle of the law will pass. And in Hebrew, it's a strange language because there are only consonants, you know, letters like B and C and uh, D, and no letters like, well, there is one that's A, but uh, it's only partly used. No vowels, <coughs> A-E-I-U-U, is that right? Something like that. And uh, to get the vowels in, you have to put little squiggles. And if you look at the Hebrew written language, it's all little squiggles, oh dear. And uh, it is decipherable, actually. It's easier than you'd think, or not so difficult as you'd think, perhaps, I should say. But they changed the whole meaning of a word. Now, um, it's difficult to uh, give um, an example. I was trying to think of one. Um, think of B and T, and you can put an A in between, and you've got a bat. What sort of a bat? A cricket bat or a bat that flies around in the night? We don't know. You have to look at the context. Or you can put an E in and it's a bet on the national lottery. Or you can put an I in and it's a bit. And you can put a U in and it's a but. But? But what? You see the point? That's how Hebrew is. Those tiny little squiggles totally change the meaning of the Hebrew word, as the vowels do in English. And the tiny little squiggle in this verse is the apostrophe in the word neighbors. If you take the apostrophe out, it's just simply neighbors in the plural. Sheila, who lives at the end of our garden. Edna, who lives next door. The people who live over the road neighbors but as soon as you put the apostrophe in it means neighbors possessions it changes the whole emphasis of the word and that little apostrophe is there i've got a good friend on the internet you'll wonder why i keep talking about the internet okay i spend too much time on it my wife will tell you but never mind and uh, he pretends i think to have an obsession about apostrophes and so I looked up the street names in Potton, and I forget some of the names, but uh, some of them are obviously the names of people. Now think of the name Matthew. Supposing you've got a Matthews close. Now, would it be a close belonging to a Mr. Matthews, or would it be a close belonging to Matthew? If you put an apostrophe before the W and the S, then it would belong to Matthew. If you put an apostrophe after the S, it would belong to Mr. Matthews. Don't forget German, uh, Norfolk, Bernard Matthews, you see, so I had to think of a Norfolk man, didn't I, as an illustration? Sorry about that. But you see the point that, as Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, every little thing in scripture has a significance. And this tiny little apostrophe in this verse is saying, yes, this is to do with your neighbor. And this is what this whole message 
of this uh, passage is about. So we come to the first two of these do not covets. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Now, this may seem strange, and I have to comment here. I looked this up with Calvin. I'm not obsessed with Calvin, but I did look it up. And strangely, he puts wife first and then house. Now, I did look up the Hebrew in two interlinear Bibles, and uh, as far as I can see, Calvin got it wrong. Uh, it is definitely house first and then wife. So we'll take them in the order in which the Hebrew puts them. Why does God inspire Moses to write house first? Actually, God wrote these, didn't he? Why house first? Well, we have to be careful here because when we read the word house, we realize that the people of Israel, when these commandments were given, they didn't have any houses. Remember? Where were they? They were living in tents. They may well have had houses in Egypt. In fact, we're fairly sure they did because what happened at the Passover? Well, they put blood on the doorposts. And I've yet, well, I have actually seen one tent with doorposts, would you believe? I forget where I saw it, and I thought, that's remarkable. I meant to get a photograph of a, a tent with a door. But most tents don't. They have flaps. And uh, here these Israelites were, living in tents. And he said, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Why? May I suggest to you that this is looking forward to that inheritance which God had promised to Abraham that they would live in the land flowing with milk and honey remember that God was going to give them there they would have houses and so we see this concept enshrined in this simple word house of an inheritance now, by coincidence, we're reading through in our church Bible reading scheme, 1 Kings this month. I should have finished today and we'll have to do so when I get home. And in the last but one chapter of that book is the story of Naboth's vineyard. Do you remember that story? This wicked king Ahab was a man who was absolutely covetous. What he saw, he wanted. And he saw that this man next door, Naboth, had this vineyard. And he said, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden. Now, in scripture, you will see it again and again, God talks about vineyards, not about vegetable gardens. Sorry if you're a vegetable gardener, but that's scripture. There is something significant about a vineyard. But more than that, you see, it was Naboth's inheritance. And the reason that Naboth said, go, it's right, uh, said no, it's right there in 1 Kings chapter 21 is, I will not depart from my inheritance. 
And I would suggest to you that this word house here means not just simply bricks and mortar, as we would say, but that inheritance. And I feel I'm on safe ground for saying that, even though I can't find it in a commentary, because throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, the Hebrew word that's translated house is also translated household and is also translated family and it means inheritance. And believe it or not, the Greek word in the New Testament is exactly the same. Two very different languages, two very different people, but focusing on this one word for house, it means the same. In Hebrew, bayeth, and in Greek, oikos, both are translated throughout as house and as household, and pointing us towards inheritance. And that's what worried Naboth. He did not want to sell his inheritance. It wasn't the land, it was the inheritance. What's this pointing us to? It is pointing us to our inheritance in the kingdom of God. That house with many mansions. Here in this commandment, do not covet your neighbor's inheritance, not just his house. I have proof of this, if you like, because in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 1 in the authorized version, we read these words. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou, and all thy house, bayeth all thy house, into the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. So you see, Noah started demolishing his house and carrying it into the ark brick by brick. Well, did he? No, of course not. What did he take into the ark with him? Yes, all the animals. But what God is commanding him to do is to take with him his family. Because who are his family but his inheritance? And I made a particular study of the chapters after the flood recently in another context. And we, every one of us here in this room this evening, are there as a result of Noah taking his house, his inheritance into the ark, because not only are we descended from Adam, we are also descended from Noah. Has that ever occurred to you? Well, I knew that, but it's far more real to me now than it was a few weeks ago. His house was his inheritance, and it's you, and it's me, it's everybody in Potton, everybody in Bedfordshire, in England, in the UK, in the world. We are that house, that inheritance. But you see, again, this points us to the salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what does the um, apostle say in Acts 16 to the Philippian jailer? There had been this earthquake, you've seen these tsunamis, and you've seen these terrible happenings in the world, the houses destroyed. There had been this earthquake, the prison had been shaken, the doors had burst open, and the jailer came trembling, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you 
and your house in the authorised version, household in some of the other versions, same word, same meaning. Your inheritance, your family, those who are close and near to you. But you see, they would inherit eternal life. He wasn't worried about his house falling down. Well, he may have been. It had been an earthquake after all. Who was to know what structural damage had been done? Get the surveyor in and check the walls for cracks. No, he was concerned for himself. He was concerned for his future. What would happen if the prisoners had escaped? You will be saved. You and your house. You see, this points us not to the fact that uh, Moses is putting a building first on the list, rather the fact that this speaks of an inheritance. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. This is why Christianity is under attack, because the world sees that we have an inheritance laid up in heaven for us, undefiled, and they're envious. They don't want it to be true. They want to deny it, and they are breaking this commandment. They covet it. They want to take it from us and somehow destroy it, as Ahab did with Naboth's vineyard and turn our vineyard into a vegetable plot. Not that there's anything wrong with vegetable plots, but you understand that I'm saying that there is a change in the biblical significance in these words. Now here we come to the crunch, you see. Why has this house been put before wife? Surely the wife is the more important. Well, in a way it's true. But you see, the point is this, that the inheritance supersedes the marriage. Now I say this because uh, uh, in, in uh, our experience, my wife and I, we, we've had the reverse problem. We've been married for 50 years. And so far, I've managed only to have one wife, which is perhaps good. I hope so. Um, but we are now in our 11th house since we've been married. It's a, like a reversal of what's here in this commandment. But sometimes a reversal of things brings to truth the light, uh, the light to truth, doesn't it? Uh, the truth to light. Sorry, you get it right. Because... When we reverse things, we can sometimes see the thing properly, like in a mirror. And uh, why the commandment puts the wife second is because our inheritance points to first, that is, in heaven. Read what Luke, the Lord Jesus says in Luke chapter 20, 34 and 35. Jesus answered and said to them, this was people who were saying, well, this man's been married more than once, which wife is going to be his in heaven. The sons of, or the other way around, doesn't matter. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain this, that age, that is the inheritance of eternal life and resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. What does it mean? It means, yes, marriage is a blessed institution which God has ordained right from the beginning of Genesis, but it's not permanent. It's sad, but it's not permanent. And some of us here know from experience that uh, situation. Sometimes uh, we had a tragedy in my brother's family this year 
in that he is married to Pat, who's a twin. Uh, her sister was Pam. And whilst Pat seems to remain remarkably healthy, her twin sister suffered serious illness for many years. And she sadly died uh, some months ago. And her husband was also terminally ill. And he died just a few weeks later. So we went to two funerals in rapid succession. Now, in that case, the husband only survived the wife by a very short time. And the same thing happened with my parents, that my father died. And then just five weeks later, my mother died. But for others, it's a different experience. There was a, a separation for many years. And what the Lord Jesus is teaching here is that strong though the marriage bond is, in this life it's not permanent. And we all need to face up to that. It's a hard, perhaps the hardest thing to face up to, but it's something that is real. Now, when I was converted in a camp back in 1958, one of the helpers at that camp was a young lady by the name of Carol. And one of the camp leaders was a young man by the name of Richard. And would you believe Carol and Richard got married? But sadly, not long after, Richard acquired cancer and died. Carol, a bit later, married again. Her second husband died. And to everyone's sadness, she married a third time and her third husband died. Now it's the other way around here, but you see the point, that marriage is meant to be a permanent institution, but because of sin, because of the corruption that sin brings, it's not. But what we are not to do is to seek to terminate a marriage by doing what David did in that passage and coveting another man's wife. It's well worth reading this verse and then reading 2 Samuel chapter 11, how David got from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And we see the progression of how David saw, he coveted, he committed adultery, and then he committed murder. And that takes us right back to John Gill's quotation that we had at the beginning, isn't it? That it was in his mind, but it became his action, and it became his sin. Thou shalt not covet. But I want to close with the, the last part of the verse. Because, you see, one of the objections is that uh, the wife is listed along with these other things in this verse, the cattle, the servants, the goods and chattels, he's just treated like anything else. Wrong. Look again at the verse. You shall not covet, you sorry, revert to the AV, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and because I prepared from the New King James Version, it goes, nor, 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 get it right, five times. You see that there is not repeated, 
you shall not covet your neighbours. Why? I would suggest to you that we can draw, draw, as it were, a line in the middle of this verse where it separates that inheritance which points us to the inheritance of the Christian in that house of many rooms, that house of many mansions, that eternal inheritance. It separates out that wonderful relationship between man and wife. And then it deals with these other things which are important, but are lesser importance. You remember this morning how we quoted Shakespeare and the uh, loss of one's purse? Well, you know, if I lost this purse, so what? How much is in there? I don't know, 50 pence, maybe a pound, that's all. No big deal. But if I went home and found my wife had walked out on me, that would be slightly more, would it not? Slightly more. And you see the difference. The words of this commandment are not arbitrary. They are significant because this emphasis on your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, and then this simple nor, 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 nor five times indicate that there is a change of significance in the middle of the verse. Not that those things are unimportant because otherwise they wouldn't be mentioned. But the way that they are worded shows that they are of lesser importance in God's scheme of things. After all, who has a donkey? Anyone here got a donkey? I haven't. I may be a bit of an ass, but I'm not, I don't have a donkey. You see the point? What about servants? Well, when I started work as an apprentice, it was uh, said that uh, the company I worked for had a, an unwritten agreement with all the other companies in Norwich that we would not poach one another's staff. Perhaps they were using this commandment as her precept, I don't know. And that's basically what's saying, if chap's got a good servant, well, I'll have him. Don't be like that. If he wants to come to you, fine, but don't uh, go behind his master's back and take him. But you see, it's nothing like losing an inheritance, nothing like losing a wife. And so these last ones are simply dealt with, with nor, 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 nor. The ESB, I'm sorry to say, has got it wrong. We were talking about this uh, this morning because I read from the ESB thinking it was New King James, and I saw or, 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 and it should be nor, 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 nor. I have to look up the Hebrew and see which is right. But there's a difference, isn't it? It's neither nor or either or. At lunchtime, I was offered two desserts. It was either A or B. I wasn't said, no one said to me, you can't have this, you, neither, nor. You see the point? Neither strawberries and cream, neither caviar, nor, either, or. And this is nor, nor, nor. We don't want any of it. Okay? You get the meaning. Everything's significant. So I believe that the New King James has it right in meaning, if not in actual language. What to covet then, finally, uh, very briefly, we covet the best gifts of all. And so I come very briefly to this uh, exposition of our pastor uh, in um, 
the uh, word of God on November the 25th. This is very brief, don't worry. Uh, from uh, John chapter 12. And it's a heading under the strange title, Help to Love. Help to Love. Why do we need a help to love? Well, this is the, uh, what uh, Paul preached. This is what the God, Word of God teaches. Three things. He promises the Holy Spirit, another helper. I will pray to the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. We see that he abides with us forever. He is always there within. He is able to help because we have Jesus' promise and he is in every believer. No second blessing, forget about that, that's a myth. In every believer when we are saved, the Holy Spirit dwells within. <clears throat> Secondly, he is a great teacher. He will teach you all things, verse 26, and bring to your remembrance all the things I said to you. The way he does that, of course, is through this book. I was saying we mustn't call it the Bible, it's the Holy Bible. Bible simply means book. It's not any book, it's the Holy Book, God's book. And he teaches us through that. He gives us understanding of what it means. And he touches our hearts with it. It's not just head knowledge, but heart knowledge. And he gives us a sure position. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. We are loved by God. God is in us, in Christ and in spirit. And he gives us peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. A covetous heart is always a troubled heart. I want more. A peaceful heart is an untroubled heart. So there are two things then to remember as we conclude. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even as we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. We cannot satisfy God even if we could keep all ten commandments every moment of our lives we will not be justified only by trusting the Lord Jesus as Saviour but on the other hand he who has my commandments and keeps them it is he who loves me let's pray Lord we thank you that we have these commandments we thank you too for the knowledge that they are not there to save us but to show us our sin and our need for salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, grant of each of us may know that salvation in our hearts, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So grant us your peace, we pray. Amen.